Well, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, if you want to look in the Pew Bible, if you don't have your telephone or your tablet with you, uh, it's page 976. In Acts chapter 19, we read that Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. And so that was going to be the beginning of his second visit to the city. Now, he would have descended out of the mountains, out of the upper regions, and so he was descending on the city. When he visited it the first time at the end of his first, second missionary journey, he arrived by the port. And so I think it's important that we begin a study in the book to the Ephesians by looking at context. And I want to use the image of Paul descending out of the upper regions and raise the question, what did Paul see? Unquestionably, the first thing that he would have seen as he came over those mountains and descended on the city was the great temple to the Roman, uh, to, to, the, to the Greek goddess, Artemis. This temple housed the Bank of Asia. Today, this temple is known as the seventh of the seven great wonders of the world. The city was referred to as the Neokoros. This is the keeper of the shrine. Now, picture this temple in your mind. This temple was 110 meters by 33 meters, built on a platform that was 170 meters by 80 meters. It had 127 columns in marble that were 20 meters high with a marble roof. It was four times the size of the Parthian in Athens. Or if you want to bring this down to our situation, think about St. Joseph's Oratory and multiply it by three. It would have dominated the scope and the sight of the city. And coming down out of the hills, Paul's eyes would have been immediately attracted to it. But he probably would have looked a little bit to the left, and he would have seen the great port by which he had entered several years earlier. And this would have reminded him about how important imports would have been to this city. This was a city of 300,000 people. Now, um, for us today, that's a kind of a medium-sized city. But in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Alexandria, this and Corinth would have been the next two largest cities soon to be eclipsed by Antioch. Now, one of the great importations of this city was wine. Now, put this together. Is it little wonder that in Ephesians 2... Paul's going to talk about the church being a new temple. And in Ephesians 5, when we get there, he's going to say, don't be intoxicated with your major importation, but be ye being controlled 
by the spirit of the living God. Context influenced how he wrote. Paul would have obviously already known, but he would have seen those districts coming down, that this was a religious city. You see, the Greek goddess was Artemis. The Latin goddess was Diana. And she was known in this city by the multi-breasted idols that carried all sorts of magic, all sorts of sorcery. And is it little wonder that when Paul gets to chapter 3, and particularly chapter 6, he's going to talk about the principalities in the powers, the authorities, the thrones that capsulated the social imaginary of this city. Paul would have seen from the mountains the great theater, a theater that still is an archaeological site to this very day, that housed or seated 25,000 people. Think about Percival Stadium down at McGill. And think about it. For over two hours, Paul was front and center in which the Ephesians chanted, Great is the goddess of the Ephesians. Now, two weeks ago, one of our great idols passed away. Imagine on his last game when he retired, not in Montreal, but in Quebec City, we'll forgive him for that, Guy Lafleur was chanted for 12 minutes. Not quite as long as Maurice Guichard and his last appearance at the Old Forum was chanted for 15 minutes. Imagine two hours, 25,000 people, rhythmically, great, is the goddess of the Ephesians. And Paul would have seen that theater. But Paul would have also seen the marketplace. It was there in the marketplace where he shook the dust off of his sandals and he said, I'm giving up on ministry to the Jews. I'm going to turn to the non-Jews. And he established his base of operations at the school of Tyrannius in downtown Ephesus, right at the marketplace. Why, Paul would have worked his trade as a leather worker in that market. He would go into the school of Tyrannius and in Acts chapter 19, we learned that he taught at that school, and now there's a variant in what we call the Greek manuscripts, and it, and it actually says in many of the finest manuscripts, but not all of them, that he taught from the 11th hour to the 15th hour. The historian and archaeologist that I know best that's worked on these variants is William Ramsey. He actually thinks that it's, it's actually a pretty a clear picture of what Paul did in Ephesus. And he calculated that Paul gave probably pretty close to 3,000 hours of instruction to the Ephesian Christians. And Paul would have seen where he was going to begin to do that. And so that is the context to which Paul now will contemplate and then write this letter. So turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And with the context fully in mind, let me begin by just reading the intro. But really what I want to do in this part of the message this morning is look at what I'm going to call some key markers 
again, the first 14 verses that you're going to want to keep in mind as you're going through this, ser- this series. And for those of you that are going to do Ephesus in your small groups, keep these markers in mind. Because Paul begins this letter by saying, Paul, an apostle, okay, a missionary of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, I, I realize that um, with people that uh, probably have too much time on their hands and they happen to be part of um, the hermeneutical fraternity which I uh, am a part of, um, they're quite convinced that Paul didn't write this letter. Um, And they say that for two reasons. One is, is that this is kind of a feeble introduction. It's not as clear as in all of the other Pauline letters. And there's no goodbyes at the end, which is classic Pauline. But uh, quite frankly, like I said, they got too much time on their hands. Um, you got to remember, Paul's going to identify himself here in chapter 1 and verse 1. He's going to introduce himself in chapter 3 and verse 1. He's going to talk a little bit about himself in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And he's going to mention his name again in chapter 4. So either the person who wrote this is just a, a, a flagrant liar... Uh, or somebody was in bad need of credentials, and so they decided that they would try and get Paul's appeal. Uh, For our purposes, this is one of the authentic letters of the Apostle Paul. What is interesting is that in the next verse, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and the identity of Ephesus is is missing from some of the finest manuscripts that we have that give birth to our English text. And so the debate goes on. But because of the references to temple, because of the references to wine, I think Paul was just contextualizing what he was doing. But what's so interesting is that Paul is going to say, these people who are reading my letter, I consider you to be saints, and I consider you to be faithful. And so the people that were going to listen to this letter being read, for those who were literate that would read it, right away, Paul is saying, I take your affiliation with Jesus seriously. You're saints, you're holy people, and you have proven your faithfulness. And so all of a sudden, they're going to start listening really closely. Now, before we read what starts in verse 3, Um, Let me underscore some more key markers here. First of all, as we work through the text today, I want you to notice, okay, next marker, in Christ Jesus. This is one of Paul's favorite expressions. Here's where you're going to see this expression this morning. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, twice in verse 10, Verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, two times. It probably would have been easier for me to say, here are the verses where he doesn't use that expression. Paul is going to use this expression, in Christ Jesus, or in him, or in Christ. He's going to use that 167 times in all his letters. It's about what it means to participate in Christ once you decide to follow him. It's about union in Jesus. And it it goes to the core about how Paul understood the Christian life and the church. But imagine, 
the 167 times that he used that expression in the whole ensemble of his writings, we've got 12 of them in the paragraph we're going to look at this morning. That's a key marker. Now, um, beginning in verse 3 down to verse 14, now you're going to chuckle on this one. Um, this is one long sentence in the Greek language. Um, I have given up trying to find the subject, the verb, and the object. People who know Greek a whole lot better than me can probably find it, but you can't even find a commentary that, that, that will even try anymore. But what this is, there's a technical word for this, I won't use it, but this is a, a eulogy. This is probably a speech that Paul gave. Certainly it's a piece of writing that contains high praise for a person. And so think about this. Um, on Good Friday, my former neighbor, uh, who lived next to Sandy and me for 35 years, uh, she passed away. When her, um, when her partner passed away four years ago, the family asked if I would do the funeral, which was not a headache at all. But when Ruth passed away, I was delighted to say yes. And so uh, two weekends ago, um, yeah, two weekends ago, when we did her funeral, um, I led the service and I did a eulogy. I gave a word of high praise for Ruth as my friend, as my neighbor. And Paul is giving one of those eulogies here. This word of high praise. Now what goes to the heart of the praise here is what we call election. And I'm going to come to that in just a minute. But now, if we can't find the subject, the verb, and the object in this long word of praise, what we do see is the glue that holds the passage together. And that glue turns around some conjunctions. So verse 4, just as. In verse 7, in Christ. In verse 11, in Christ. In verse 13, in Him. So on this one, follow the grammar. Because this will help you to unpack this word of high praise. But now, as we look at that glue, two things become readily obvious. And again, they're key markers. And I want to use these this morning. You will see in verses 3 to 6 that Paul is talking about the past. In verses 7 to 12, he moves into the present. And in verses 13 and 14, he looks to the future. And so as we unpack the eulogy this morning, I'm going to look at what God granted in verses 3 to 6, what the reality is that Christ gives in verses 7 to 12, and then finally in verses 13 and 14, the future that the Holy Spirit guarantees. You see, there's another key marker. This word of praise is all about the triune God. And Paul brings it all together by looking back, by looking in the present, but by looking forward. Now, here, here's a couple of other key markers that are important to keep in mind. Um, from verses 3 to 12, Paul is in the first person plural. He's talking about us. 
And then in verse 13 and 14, he moves to you. And so we've kind of got to figure out, you know, Paul, where are you going here? Okay, we'll get to that a little longer. But it's a marker to keep in mind. But here's what's really important. Paul is not talking to individuals in the church or churches in Ephesus. He's talking to the church. And so when we get to the so what, we've got to make sure that we're talking about how we're going to take this text seriously as a congregation. Because Paul is talking to the church. The you, well, we'll come to that in a minute. Now, I think there's two other markers to keep in mind. The first is what we, wanna, what, what, what we might want to call a, a key to interpreting the whole passage. Because uh, listen to what Paul's going to say. In verse 5, he's going to say, according to the good pleasure of his will. Um, verse 9, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Verse 10, as a plan for the fulfillment of time. And then uh, in verse 11, who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. And so this becomes a marker because it helps us to interpret what Paul is saying here. Paul is actually putting a wide-angle lens on his camera and he's looking what God is at work in doing before chronological time. And Paul is saying, and it all comes together now. It helps us to get a perspective. But finally, the last marker I want to draw to your attention. The descriptors of the church. The descriptors of followers of Jesus, which really jump off the page as we read this. In verse 4, we read that the purpose of God's choice is for believers to be holy and blameless. So if you want descriptors of what God wants from the church, he wants holiness and he wants blamelessness. But then Paul continues and he says, in his will, and now three times, first of all in verse 6, he's going to say, you exist to the praise of the glory of his grace. In, in, in verse 12 and verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And so the last marker I want to draw to your attention is that the vocation of the people of God in Ephesus, the vocation of those that follow Jesus Christ at Rosemount Bible Church, why do we exist? To give God all the honor, all the time. And that's where Paul wants to bring it together. Now, let's go into the passage. Let me just create a little parenthesis for a couple of minutes here. Because the text starts off with, blessed. Now, in my mind, the only way to understand this eulogy beginning with blessed is to go back into the Jewish literature, particularly the Jewish scriptures. Because the idea of blessing, particularly blessing someone, you actually find this 327 times in the Jewish uh, scriptures. Um, 
So, like we have here, bless, okay? It's active. God's the subject. But then we get blessings in this text. And 71 times in the Old Testament, we get that. This is an active word. God is the subject. But here's where it really gets interesting. God is blessed, but when followers follow him, think about the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 for a minute. Blessed are those who see themselves as spiritually poor. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it's a change. Because now it's not those who see themselves as spiritually poor. They're not the subject. God's the subject. God is blessing them. So really, I have a really good friend. He... he um, he, tr- he translates the, the, uh, the Beatitudes this way. Those who see themselves as spiritually poor are synchronized with God. I love that. You see, with God as the subject and the church as the object, we bless God, but God works it so that we're well synchronized with him. We're in tune with him. And so as we work through this, think about it. What does it mean for us to honor God, to bless God, to remember God, to not forget God? That's everything that goes into blessing God. But when we do that, God turns around and he makes sure that we're well in tune with him, we're synchronized with him. And and, and that's where this whole passage goes. So keep in mind, so how do I want to be well-tuned, synchronized with God? Okay, let's read verses 3 to 6, and let's go into the past, and let's see what are those blessings that God grants. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Just, okay, a key marker. As he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In love he destined us for adoption as children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his, to the praise of his gracious, glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now interestingly, the word blessed or blessing uh, um, three, three times in one verse. Now, again, even this verse, um, it's a classic eulogy, typical of all Greek literature, particularly Christian writers. Um, there's all sorts of subordinate clauses here. There's connecting phrases, but the key word is bless or blessing. And, and I want to get to that in the next section when we look at what happens with what Jesus has given us. And in verse 4, Paul describes the the intimate life that God chose for us in Christ. And there's where he uses the word choosing. And so we come to the great doctrine of election. And you're thinking, oh no, here we go. Well, don't forget the adjective I used. The great doctrine of election. I think it's really critical to understand. 
And let me unpack it this way. Well, I mean, what is election? When, when this text says that, that uh, just as he chose us in Christ, what is Paul getting at? Let me, let me say four things about election. And the first is this. Election, choosing, foreordination, predestination. Let me be really blunt. It's not about you. It's about God. God chose God's self for the world. God chose Jesus for the world and for the church. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. Because God in his triune plurality, in that diversity, made the conscious decision to turn to the world and for the second member of the Trinity to be chosen to go into history. Now, the second thing is that it's about community. It's plural. God chose in Christ the church. It's the church that's elected. So we must not get into this. Well, you know, I don't like talking about Jesus, and I'm not sure my neighbor is even elected. My friends, that's heresy. That's just blatant heresy. Because God chose God's self for the world, he desires that all come to know him. Peter says it very, very clearly. But it's about God choosing the church. Before that, it was about God choosing Israel. And so this is corporate. Now, we do know that at certain times and at certain moments in history, God chose individuals to get the process going or re-going. And so that's why the third thing is really important. Election is about what God does in history. And so what did God do in history? God chose a non-Jew, probably in Iraq, by the name of Abraham, to form a people. And so in history, the formation of Israel, here's the fourth thing to remember about election. It has a purpose. So that the world would know that God exists and has a plan. And all of that, it's about God, it's about the community, it's always in history, and it's got a purpose. That's what goes into election. And that's what this eulogy is all about. That God chose Jesus. He elected Jesus. And he chose the church. In history, in time, so that the world would come to know him. And so, in this text, it says that God chose the church in Ephesus. That they would be holy and blameless, which is exactly what he said in verse 1. And in, in verse 5, I, I love verse 5, because it, it describes the love that animates the life of God in his actions in the world. And he's there, and now the text says predestined. So, so it's kind of part of that, 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 that field of words that I just talked about. Election, choosing, foreordination, um, destiny. Uh, 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 all of that goes together. And what goes on here is that God is prefashioning his people. 
The, the problem we have in modern English with predestination, with the word, is that it's got this stem to it, destiny. And so we end up thinking that we're, we, we're somehow part of a fatalistic universe. And then we misread Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we read it to say that all things work together for good, and we think, oh boy, you know, you know even, even when all sorts of bad things, well, it says all things work together. No, it doesn't say that. It says God works together with his people so that all things contribute to his glory. And so we, we've got to get our heads around that this is about God prefashioning, if you will, his church, and the word he uses, is adoption. I have two very, very dear friends. They were colleagues um, for many years. And um, uh, they, they were never able, even after 10 years of marriage, uh, they were never able to have children. And there was never any good medical explanation other than it's just not working. Um, and so they, they put their names in. They didn't want to go with a foreign adoption. They wanted to go with a Quebec adoption. And so they joined the line, which normally takes seven years. Um, you can imagine the shock on their faces when um, Child Protection called to them and said, um, uh, we have twins for you. They're three years old. And um, uh, you can come and meet them tomorrow. Um, you know, 40 weeks of gestation is not a bad idea. You know, you, you get ready. Beats a phone call. <laughs> but, but my friends, I was with them uh, 10 days ago, and, and I, I met the twins um, for, for the second time. And to hear my friends talk about what adoption means and because they're really good followers of Jesus, how it's given them a whole new insight into what God does. That's verse 5. That God animated in his love. He prefashioned us and he adopts us. And my friends, it's not a phone call. It's about what God did in Jesus. And so therefore... When he gets to verse 6, at the end of this first historical section with the accent on God the Father, now this pre-fashioning is for nothing less than celebrating his grace. And so right away we say, wow, what God was up to was about giving the church a vocation to celebrate his grace. Okay, let's go, let's go to verse 7 now. And, and now we come to the second section. Let's read verses 7 to 12. In him, okay, there's the marker, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillness and uh, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in Christ another marker we have also obtained an inheritance having been destined prefashioned according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his will so that we might be the first to set our hope in Christ and might live 
for the praise of his glory. I mean, you can hear it, that, that in this second section, now the accent is on Jesus, and here's the reality that Jesus gives. And there's two sections, a section on redemption and a section on what we've obtained. But they're really similar thoughts in the two parts of what Christ accomplishes. The first one is, in him we have redemption. This is the sense of the price which was paid. So we think about motifs, if you will, about, um, about uh, illustrations, metaphors, about what happens to people when Jesus died. Paul says, you've been taken out of the marketplace. A price was paid. And Paul does something really fun in both Ephesians and in Colossians. He takes the word redemption and he takes the word reconciliation. He's gone on in life now. He's a little older. And so he adds a prefix to both redemption and reconciliation. And the prefix is everything that God in Christ completely redeemed you. He does that in Colossians. Completely, intricately, totally reconciled you. Paul wanted to say, maybe you don't get it with my motif about redemption. Jesus did it all thoroughly. Now, obviously, the image here is the marketplace. And so Paul might maybe in part of those 3,000 hours at Tyrannus' place, uh, he could point his finger to what was going on in the marketplace where slaves were being, a price was being paid to take them out of the agora, the marketplace of slavery. And so Paul is saying, sin is slavery. Um, sinners are slaves. You need liberation. And that's what Jesus did. And so in this passage, he dealt with you as a sinner and with the ultimate enemy, sin, and he totally liberated you. He intricately liberated you. And think about the little clauses that Paul adds here. I mean, he's classic, you know. Through his death, with the mention to his blood, by his lavish grace, in his wisdom and insight. And Paul kind of winks here and he says, and it was all part of the plan. And it was according to his will. It's now made evident. And to make sure we get the point about the reality that Christ gives, he says, but you haven't just been redeemed. You've obtained something. And the root here is, you, you receive a share. You receive a lot. Um, you've been chosen as a partner. You've obtained an inheritance. And so, having been pre-shaped, God's choice. Now he says, you've been pre-shaped to have a share, a partnership, an inheritance. And it gives us the opportunity to hope in Christ. And so Paul, when he gets to the end of verse 12, he'll say, In Christ we have received an inheritance so that we might live and praise God. And now when we get to verse 12, now we understand what the spiritual blessings are in verse 3. Because... There are all sorts of blessings that we can talk about 
about honoring God, following Jesus. Um, you, you can make those up in your mind as I'm talking. You can think about them all. But what's so interesting here is that the key is not the benefits. The key is the purpose. And he'll finish this section by going back to where he finished the first section by talking about our vocation. The great benefit of the realities that Christ gave us, Paul says in this section, is that you will do it to the praise of his honor, of his glory. In other words, the great benefit of being a follower of Jesus is that we're called to be witnesses. We're invited into the plan. We're invited into the project. It's kind of like God saying, friends, I've chosen you, and I need you. And that's the reality that Christ gives us. But what's so beautiful in this middle section is that as you follow all the ins and outs of what Paul's saying, Paul is saying, what I have given you for the future, you've got today. We live in the presence of the future. So if we could put it this way, yeah, there's lots of benefits to being a Christian and following Jesus, and we might want to talk about going to heaven, but Paul's saying, that's not the point. The point is, is that I want you to live. Your vocation is to honor me, glorify me, celebrate me right now. So the blessings that God grants, that's the past. The reality that Christ gives that's right now. It's about redemption and having an inheritance, but not waiting for it. You've got it. Want it right now. And you can live it right now. Verses 13 and 14. And this is about the future that the Holy Spirit guarantees. Let's read verses 13 and 14. In him, okay, now here comes the marker, you... Okay, now we're going to switch from the first person plural to the second person plural. You also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards the redemption as God's people. Guess what he's going to say? To the praise of his glory. Now, um, why the switch? Why does he move from first person plural to second person plural. I'm not sure. My hunch is that he wanted to make sure that the non-Jews in the community in Ephesus understood that they were part of this. So he might be talking to the Gentiles in these two verses. I, I, I think that works. But the only thing is, is that what he's saying here isn't just for Gentiles. It's for everybody. So I just kind of shrug my shoulders and I just say, well, I don't know. I don't know. But I think that might be what he's trying to get at. But notice what he does. He says, having heard and having believed. So for both the Jews that had decided to follow Jesus and for the Gentiles that had decided to follow Jesus, which is a key part of what he's going to do in this whole letter, He's going to say, okay, you've heard certain things, you've believed certain things, and so here are two things that you are going to have for eternity. They're guaranteed. And the first is a seal. This is not too difficult to understand. 
Um, think about your passport. Um, think about when you get that wonderful privilege we have here in Quebec to pay um, the, uh, the tax de bienvenue on buying property. Okay? But what makes that document important is that it has got the seal of the notary on it. And blessed be you when you've paid off your mortgage and you go to the bank to finish. What makes sure that it's real? Okay, the bank and the notary puts the seal on it. In other words, it's legal. It's binding. It's got authority invested in it. And Paul is saying here, having heard and having believed, now you've got the guarantee. You've got the seal. But he goes one step farther and he'll say, and you've got the pledge which is really just another way of saying, here's the down payment. And so what's the down payment? It's the Holy Spirit. So to make sure that this eulogy is properly Trinitarian, Paul brings what the Holy Spirit does. And so when God looks at the church, what does God see? He sees the Holy Spirit. And he says, those are my people. I see the Holy Spirit. They've got the seal. They've got the pledge. It's true. But why? To the praise of his glory. So in all three sections, Paul finishes each section by saying, you've got these blessings so you will honor God. You've got this reality from the Holy Spirit in redemption and what you've obtained so that you'll give honor to God. You've got the pledge and the, and the seal of the Holy Spirit so that you'll honor God. That's what makes it a eulogy. Okay, so what? What does this mean? We have to take these first 14 verses so very, very seriously because this describes what our vocation is. And so that when this neighborhood right around us when this borough of Rosemont and Petit Patrie look at Rosemount Bible Church, it's as if Paul is saying to Rosemount, you are the entity. You are the structure. You are the community that explains God to the neighborhood. God's saying, I'm, I'm not going to send Jesus again. That's done. I'm not going to write in the sky, I exist. God's going to say, you know what Jesus is about? Look at Rosemount Bible Church. Now that can be very scary. <laughs> particularly when you're not getting along with somebody in the church. Uh, particularly if you're talking behind somebody's back. Uh, particularly if you're complaining about what the elders and the deacons and the leaders aren't doing. Ephesians chapter 1 needs to remind us we're the entity that God has chosen, prefashioned, to explain God to the neighborhood. And so there's no better reason to be in spiritual health than this eulogy. Because this reminds us what God wants us out of us. He wants us to do things and say things and live things that bring honor to his name. And this is what the church is all about at this point in this epistle. But I would be amiss if I didn't say, but this is about our identity 
as followers of Jesus. And I think there's really good reasons to do an introspection this afternoon where you take verses 3 to 14 and, and whenever you see what Paul is saying about what God in Christ did for the church, just put your name in there. I've been redeemed. Glenn has an inheritance. Glenn's been sealed. Glenn's got a pledge. Because the truest thing about you, no, let me put it this way. The truest thing about Glenn it, it, it's not my education. Um, it, it, it's not about my marriage and my kids as important as that is to me. It, it, it's not about my years of service. No, the truest thing about me is that God loves me. And the biggest lie is that God doesn't love me. And this eulogy reminds us to say, what's the truest thing about you? First per, a second person, singular. Because Paul wants us to be synchronized with the triune God for what he did in the past, what he's doing today, and what he's going to do for the future. Now, what an amazing way to start a letter. And I pray good providence on you over the next few months as you study this book. I love it. It's great. But then, they're all great. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, this morning I, I, I want to pray for my sisters and brothers because of the way that you have again ministered to me as I prepared and just this wonderful reality that I'm part of your church and both universally and locally and we're what interprets the good news to our communities. Oh, that we would take this seriously and live it out. And I pray for my sisters and brothers that each one of us would be able to say the truest thing about me is that God loves me, that God redeemed me, that God prefashioned me, that God has sealed me. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives in us, who animates us. We want to be the people that you want us to be. So that when it's all said and done, there is great praise to the glory of your grace. We pray this in your matchless name as the triune God. Amen. Amen. Have a good day.